0: Welcome to Legal Ethics Now and Next. I'm Jim Dopke, partner at the Chicago firm of Robinson, Stewart, Montgomery, and Dopke. We concentrate our practice in legal ethics, professional responsibility, and professional liability matters. We're all former attorney disciplinary prosecutors, and our partner, Mary Robinson, was the administrator of the Illinois disciplinary system. On this podcast, we discuss substantive ideas, practice tips, and trends in our industry here in Illinois and nationwide. I'm going to do a few more episodes like the first ones in which I discuss legal ethics topics, but soon I'll be doing interviews with others in various sectors of law practice and legal technology and innovation. I took some time between episodes partly to deal with a lot of stuff going on in my practice, but I also had a couple of ideas for topics that I abandoned when I heard about an event outside my home state of Illinois involving an administrative snafu, And who doesn't love a podcast about administrative snafus? But this is one that relates to a pet peeve of mine that I've blogged about before, and a change that I think could and should be made nationwide that would improve attorney discipline in a real way. This is the story of the 300. Okay, I just said it that way because I thought it would sound good on a podcast. It's not that dramatic a story. Oregon, like everywhere else, has a system by which lawyers have to register with the state bar and pay a fee. The registration process also involves providing various kinds of information, including information about any trust accounts the lawyer maintains. We have a similar system here in Illinois, but apparently in Oregon, you can complete other parts of the registration process without completing the trust account certification. And if you don't complete that, you are suspended from membership in the Oregon State Bar. In Illinois, we call it being removed from the role of attorneys. Other states call it administrative suspension. Any way you slice it, it's a way of ensuring that lawyers do their administrative homework and pay their registration fees. So what could happen with that kind of system that causes a problem for 300 lawyers all at once? Why did this story reach the media? What is going on? What happened in Oregon recently is that the State Bar changed its email system, and the notices it usually sent to lawyers concerning their trust account certifications were coming from a new address or domain. Some lawyers' email systems redirected the State Bar's notification emails to a spam folder, not recognizing the new address. And those lawyers missed the notice and didn't file the certification. 300 lawyers in all didn't file the certification and were suspended from membership in the bar. That's a lot. And like I said, it made the news. Some of the lawyers who were suspended didn't even maintain trust accounts because they're government lawyers. Elected district attorneys and public defenders. They don't even have anything to report on this front. The submission of the form is purely a ministerial act. And yet here they were, suspended from membership now the removal or administrative suspension is not a disciplinary action there is no disciplinary charge no hearing it's just pay your fee file your paperwork pay an additional fee for missing out on filing the right form in the first place or else you're off and if you're off are you no longer a lawyer are you practicing unauthorized if you file a case or a pleading while you're off is it a nullity are you committing a crime And this is where my pet peeve comes in. The answer to all of those questions should be no. Am I just saying that because I'm looking for everything to be easier or because I'm a softie about lawyers paying their registration fees and doing their homework and so forth? No. I think failing to pay the registration fee or doing the appropriate paperwork should be decoupled from the unauthorized practice of law because under the law of Illinois, we have already treated it as though it is decoupled. Not so much in the disciplinary system, but in civil and criminal cases outside the system. In the Illinois case of People v. Brigham, a lawyer represented a client in a criminal case while unregistered. The defendant argued that his conviction should not be considered valid and that his counsel provided him ineffective assistance for constitutional purposes. The state argued that Supreme Court Rule 756, which governs registration, should not be construed so as to void an otherwise valid judgment and it contended that the most capable and conscientious of attorneys might, through oversight, neglect to pay their registration fees in a timely way. They argued that such a shortcoming does not render the attorney's advice ill or his representation ineffective. That's a quote from the case. The court analyzed the matter under a number of different precedents from other jurisdictions and Illinois, including a Seventh Circuit case called Adams v. Reese, In that case, the Seventh Circuit said, The constitutional question is whether the court had satisfied itself of the advocate's competence and authorized him to practice law. Persons who obtain credentials by fraud are classes apart from persons who satisfied the court of their legal skills but later ran afoul of some technical rule. The Illinois Court in Brigham also referred to a Kansas court that said the payment of a registration fee itself has nothing to do with the legal ability of the attorney. Our court concluded that the defendant in Brigham wasn't deprived of his right to counsel by having an unregistered attorney. Then there's Applebaum versus Rush University Medical Center. The plaintiff in that case filed a wrongful death action on behalf of his father's estate. The plaintiff was the decedent's only child and the sole beneficiary of his estate, which had no creditors and was not open to probate. Plaintiff's complaint and the damages it sought were solely in the name of the estate and not pled individually for plaintiff. The plaintiff was a physician who had also received an Illinois license to practice law in 1988, and he signed the complaint as attorney for plaintiff. About a year before he filed the complaint, he had voluntarily changed his registration to that of an inactive status attorney under Supreme Court Rule 756. At a certain point in the litigation, he filed an amended complaint and signed it plaintiff pro se. The defendants argued that someone who is not duly authorized to practice law may not represent another in a court of law, and they argued that because the plaintiff was on inactive status, he was not legally permitted to bring this litigation in a representative capacity on behalf of the the estate of the decedent. The defendants requested that the court declare the case a nullity that should be dismissed with prejudice. At some point prior to the ruling on the motion to dismiss, the plaintiff returned to active status. The trial court agreed that the plaintiff could not act in a representative capacity, but it denied the motion to dismiss, and particularly denied to apply the nullity rule, which the trial court found to be too harsh. The appellate court, though, held that the nullity rule did apply and that the case should be dismissed. It relied on a case in which a medical malpractice complaint was signed and filed by an attorney located and licensed only in Wisconsin. Our Supreme Court held that the purpose of the nullity rule, is to protect litigants against the mistakes of the ignorant and the schemes of the unscrupulous, and to protect the court itself in the administration of its proceedings from those lacking requisite skills. It also said that because the result of the nullity rule is harsh, it only requires that litigants and courts be protected from the actions of the unlicensed. The court analyzed Rule 756 and its definition of attorneys registered as inactive as ineligible to practice. The central purpose of this particular rule, the court said, is to establish an administrative framework for the annual registration of attorneys licensed in Illinois and to set forth a graduated annual fee collection schedule. The court rejected the defense argument that if you're ineligible to practice law, you are as good as unlicensed. The court said it was a fundamental error to equate ineligibility as a restriction with the stripping a lawyer of his license. The court referred to the Sperry case, which we discussed in a previous episode, in which it said a duly licensed lawyer whose firm is not registered under Supreme Court Rule 721C does not engage in the unauthorized practice of law. Then the court really went after basically everyone in the case for calling the plaintiff unlicensed or formerly licensed or referring to his resumption of active status as his reinstatement. The appellate court had even said that the plaintiff petitioned for reinstatement, and that's not how that works. And the court knew that. And the court said, basically, those are terms of art and they don't apply. And they said, we caution our courts that such terms must always be used with careful precision which is a little victory for a guy like me. And if you need help using those terms with careful precision, remember to call Robinson, Stewart, Montgomery & Dopke at 312-676-9875 and say about that firm... If you're thinking about any ethical issue, big or small, if you have a one-off question or a larger project, if you're having difficulty getting past something or... If you're looking at the best ethical ways to solidify and grow your business, make sure you contact Robinson, Stewart, Montgomery, and Docky today. We represent clients in attorney and judicial discipline defense, professional liability defense, sanctions proceedings, and admissions and character and fitness matters. We also provide opinion letters and expert testimony concerning a wide variety of professionalism issues. We have the experience, insight, and empathy you'll need to find the best way forward ethically speaking. Call us today for a consultation at 312-676-9875, that's 312-676-9875, or check out our website at www.rsmdlaw.com for more information. The court in Applebaum also took the plaintiff to task, though, noting that the Supreme Court rules are not suggestions and must be followed lest you face what it called appropriate discipline. Now here, the plaintiff was the real party in interest, and so when he said attorney for plaintiff on one of the complaints he filed, that was more or less a misnomer. And so therefore, even if he violated Rule 756 technically, he may not have violated what the court called the spirit of that rule. And a follow-up, Applebaum was not disciplined for filing the complaint while on inactive status. So. If you're unregistered and you represent a client in the full defense of a criminal trial, it's not ineffective assistance because you really are a lawyer with all the appropriate training and ability. And if you're inactive and you file a complaint saying you represent an estate, the complaint is not a nullity as it would be if you were unlicensed. So what does registration, or the lack of it, really mean? Why does the administrator of the ARDC file complaints alleging that unregistered lawyers have engaged in the unauthorized practice of law? Why do they sometimes even allege that those lawyers have acted dishonestly, even without specific allegedly dishonest statements? There's a technical answer to that first question. The charges in those cases come under Rule 5.5a. That rule doesn't say it prohibits, quote, the unauthorized practice of law, unquote. It says it prohibits, quote, Practicing law in a jurisdiction in violation of the regulation of the legal profession in that jurisdiction, Rule 765 is about registration, and it regulates the legal profession in our jurisdiction. So, if you're practicing while unregistered in violation of Rule 765, the theory goes, you're in violation of Rule 5.5a as well. But that's not a very satisfying answer. The clear thrust of the cases that the administrator of the ARDC files is that the lawyer engaged in a disciplinary offense by practicing while unregistered. And they've gone so far as to suggest, in some cases, that the conduct is inherently dishonest. That's very far from the holdings and certainly the spirit of the Brigham and Applebaum decisions, which come from our Supreme Court. And the real-world consequences are just about nothing, not ineffective assistance, not pleadings held to be nullities. So why do we define unregistered practice as the unauthorized practice of law? Why not save that category for out-of-state lawyers not licensed in Illinois? Or better yet, why not save it for people who have never been licensed, yet hold themselves out as lawyers? Note, the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers has recently proposed that lawyers be allowed to practice across state lines far more broadly than they are now, And I'll be commenting on that next episode. But in any event, why tar unregistered lawyers with that same brush? Why get the machinery of the disciplinary system going? Why bother censuring them, or certainly why bother suspending them, when their violation has been characterized as technical by the court that oversees the whole process? Wouldn't it be better to decouple registration from the concept of unauthorized practice if we're not going to actually treat it like unauthorized practice? I understand that we have the registration system and that fees need to be paid, MCLEs need to be completed, and information needs to be gathered. And I understand that there needs to be some kind of enforcement mechanism that promotes or guarantees compliance. But compliance is not now guaranteed an unregistered lawyer can file a pleading or do a closing, and if the administrator gets wind of it, there might be a complaint filed or action taken to censure the lawyer in a couple of years. The parties involved will have moved on with nothing having been affected by the unregistered practice itself. So what's my suggestion to improve the situation? Stop filing formal disciplinary complaints against lawyers solely for unregistered practice definitely stop charging them with dishonesty unless they made a specific, provably dishonest statement or engaged in a provably dishonest act. What else? We don't have fines in our system, and I do hesitate to encourage that. But what if ARDC did simply fine lawyers a one-time charge when they're found to have practiced while unregistered, with a sort of motion-to-compel mechanism to enforce it? That is more bureaucracy, and in a way, more of an opportunity for regulatory intrusion on the practice. But I have to think it's a better enforcement mechanism for a technical violation than alleging that unregistered lawyers have engaged in misconduct requiring discipline. And it's certainly better than having an administrative snafu lead 300 lawyers to wonder if they've engaged in misconduct or if they need to report themselves to the bars by which they're licensed. Which they don't. A change like that might make for a more proportionate enforcement system, with regulators free to prosecute serious misconduct and lawyers who mishandle their registration able to work without fear of disciplinary consequences. For now and for the future. And that's a wrap on episode four. Thank you all for listening. I hope you found it helpful. In upcoming episodes, we'll look at more case law affecting lawyers and their practices. And like I said, we'll look at that April proposal about the unauthorized practice of law. We'll talk about tips for handling tricky situations and explore more and more ongoing trends in our industry. I hope you'll stay with me for all of that. I'm Jim Dapke. Thanks again and be well.